Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we experience NIMSY Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff that global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least not to piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests that we should reach out to for future episodes. If you haven't already done so, then go ahead and hit that subscribe, follow whatever button on whatever platform that you're watching from. If you are subscribed or following Nimsy Insights on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, then you're going to be one of the first people to get notified when we have new live streams or when Nimsy Insights publishes new research. A little bit about this platform. Most of you guys are coming to us live on uh, LinkedIn today. It looks like we have about 24 people joining us. So welcome to all of you. If you if you like, you can leave comments, in, interact with each other, interact with us in the comments over there, and we'll bring those up on stream and respond to any questions or comments that you have. Uh, if you're not coming to us on LinkedIn, you can also use that comment function on YouTube, and it will still come up on in case this stream gets interrupted today on LinkedIn, happens sometimes, then go over and check us out on YouTube. We should still be streaming over there. And of course, we'll archive all of these episodes on YouTube, as well as the podcast platform of your choice. Today, we have a guest. Before I get into the guests, let me just give a quick introduction to the topic today. Today, uh, the title of our, our, our stream today is called Competing with the Big Boys. So let me just dive right in here. Although LSPs of different sizes tend to compete for different types of clients, there is occasionally some overlap in a world where we are constantly reminded of all the mergers and acquisitions that are happening. And by the way, we're going to have a live stream next week, I think, about mergers and acquisitions. We're going to be doing more of those, so follow us to find that out. But anyways, I digress. In a world where we are constantly reminded of all the mergers and acquisitions that are happening and where more and more translation companies are betting on size and scale as a differentiator, it is important to remember that in this industry of scope, not scale, there are still plenty of opportunities for smaller competitors to win. And this is where our guest, Philippe, comes in. Philippe Tiago Stankovic is a young and very motivated CEO who has been working as such for the last three years. He originally started by getting his hands dirty and being involved in every possible step imaginable of the company that he manages, Linguamundi. Now he is a bit more focused on just managing the company. He loves learning and has been truly blessed by an opportunity, although sometimes it could be a burden, that very few young people get to be in charge and to be able to actually try his new ideas from all of the books that he reads. So welcome to the club, Philippe. <laughs> Run, running a company, it's fun, eh? Uh, thank you, Tucker, for having me. Let me just start by saying I feel like I'm on TV. Uh, on TV. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I've, always, I've uh, watched your show plenty of times and uh, uh, I've really enjoyed it. I actually use some of your videos that you put out there on YouTube as uh, training materials for my staff. Oh, great. So, well, that's, so, that's why we do them. Yeah, so uh, I think it's a really uh, beautiful public service what you guys are doing at NIMS and what you're slowly but steadily building in terms of a community for people to share ideas. So thank you very much for what you do. Oh, shucks. Thank you. Well, thank you for being a part of it today. <laughs> D did I get thank that you. intro right? Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and about your company. I didn't talk about your company. So... Um, Interestingly enough, okay, so uh, we are currently 23 at our company, so I'd say we're relatively small on the scale of things, although for the translation industry, I don't know how it is in other countries, but in Portugal, the typical translation company is like two or three people, so uh, in, in, in that sense, we're not the smallest, we're not, we're not micro, but we, I, I'd still obviously consider us to be on the smaller side of things. We specialize in primarily uh, legal and financial translations. 
with that being roughly 50% of our business. And uh, the other 50%, our vertical would be uh, uh, Portuguese language specialists, and we sell to other LSPs. So uh, uh, like you said, describing your book, that sort of logic of MLVs that outsource to uh, SLVs, single language vendors, right? And uh, we're, uh, we're exactly there in the food chain yeah. when it comes to working with, uh, with other uh, LSPs. Well, that, that to me is the sweet spot. And I've, um, I've worked at small LSPs. I've worked at large LSPs. I've worked at medium LSPs that became large LSPs. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Before we get going, though, I do want to give, give your company the plug. Where can we find out more information about your company? www.linguimundi.pt uh, We also have a YouTube channel, by the way. Oh, nice! If you're, if you're a if you're a, 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 pro, a pro, translation processes geek, and you you like uh, to learn about uh, cat tools, and uh, you like to learn about interesting processes that you can apply to increase your quality and uh, produce more standardized results for your work. Uh, exactly, there you go. Those are the most recent ones we've uploaded stuff uh, very recently. Very nice. So, uh, we, we actually make our internal training videos available for anybody who who wants to watch to watch. I try to be to create. To, I try to set an environment where people are generous with their knowledge and share with the community. I don't think it's cool to be a dragon and hoard up all the knowledge, all the gold, you know, and keep it to yourself. Yeah. I'm a believer in sharing. Uh, so well, that's one of the cool things about this industry is the knowledge sharing that people have. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. People are incredibly nice. Like the way I got started was just uh, calling people up, you know, I, I, of course, obviously, I'm a little bit privileged in this regard, which is my my it's a family owned business. Okay. Uh, my mother has managed the business uh, along with my father for the first 14 years of its existence, then by herself until the business turned about 21, 22. And I've been in charge for the last uh, uh, two to four years, depends on how you count it. Uh, and uh, basically, we, uh, as a company, we, we uh, sorry, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> like I said, it's like being on TV. I'll, and, I'll, I'll bring myself up on screen. So standing and, next to an ugly guy like me, it'll make you less nervous. <laughs> so um, we, we, uh, uh, we've been in this business for a while, and I've been tremendously lucky in the sense that I inherited a lot of my mom's uh, network uh, of people that know her. And, but I think in general, this applies even for people who, who didn't have my luck. Uh, you can just basically call people up. I mean, uh, including yourself and Renato, you're all extremely generous with your knowledge. Uh, you, you're very, you give very good advice. So I, 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 it's literally like a small community experiment that we're running on, our com on, on my company, which is me just calling people up who are generous enough to share their information. People like Vigdis Eriksson from Eriksson Translations. Um, uh, Jesper Sandberg has been extremely generous with me from the Sandberg Translation Partners. Uh, I, I'm, I'm forgetting, I'm sure I'm forgetting dozens of people, but it's like a, a little sociological experiment that we're running in my company right now, which is what happens when you take a bunch of people from the translation industry and uh, you get somebody to listen to their advice and implement it. How's that going? And I'm happy enough to say that last year we grew slightly under 30%. Wow. This year, uh, we're expected to grow at about 20% rate. Wow. Next year, we're doing pretty well ourselves. Uh, so the experiment doing... seems to be going well. Yeah, I think so. Well, listening to people who know more than you usually usually helps. So. You know, and listening to people that know more than you, in my experience, always helps. The problem is yeah. a lot of us, myself, I can say included, sometimes struggle to admit that there's people out there that know more than mm -hmm. us, right? Mm -hmm. So once you once you get over that first hurdle of understanding there's people out there with knowledge to share and you can learn from them, even though their experiences might be different, then it just becomes the next logical step. Reach out, ask for help. Yeah, so, well, I'm 12, as you know. I'm not 12, almost. Uh, <laughs> I'm 28, so 28. I'm, I'm, on the young, I'm on the young side of things. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it would be, it would look quite problematic and it would be quite problematic if I acted like I knew everything. So yeah, yeah. I guess it's the downside of being 
the upside of being young and uh, needing more experience is that you are more willing to listen to people who are more experienced. Well, uh, I don't know. And the theory. 28 now, but 28 years from now, when you're 54, then yeah. it'll be your turn. 54. I can do math. No. When you're older, <laughs> then it'll be your turn to share, share that experience with the newcomers yeah. in the industry. But one of the reasons that I've found that this industry is so open to helping and sharing knowledge with each other is it's not a traditional industry where everybody competes with everybody else. There's a lot of different niches in this industry. So you mentioned you do like legal translations. Um, Not every Portuguese company does legal translations. Some specialize in technical translations or software translations or what, what have you. So naturally, and, you know, that leaves out like companies that are not in Portugal. You know, you're not competing with, even though if you're doing legal translations, you're not competing with the Swedish guys that are doing legal translations. So because of that, this industry really lends itself well to people being open and willing to share because it's not like you're sharing with your direct competitors all of the time, right? Absolutely. So Absolutely. I, I also think that, uh, uh, you know, you can share as much as, even if you're extremely generous with your knowledge, only about 10 to 20% of the people in the room will uh, will actually implement it and follow through. So Right. Uh, <laughs> Right. Good point. Well, I I read and I wish I could remember what book, what training, whatever this was where I remember hearing this. But um, someone once said, and it stuck with me, if you're good at something, then give it away for free. And it goes against the what I've heard a lot more, which is if you're good at something, never do it for free. Right. And particularly in and what I'm doing these days with Nimzine, which is consulting, is I'm doing, um, I'm trying to um, every Wednesday do a workshop for free, a live workshop online. Now, we sell workshops at Nimzy, and people subscribe to us, and we put together, you know, three, three to six month learning plans for their teams and run regular workshops and stuff. So, this is something that I'm actually selling. But the thought process is you give it away for free, and people are going to be interested in, well, if he's doing this publicly for free, then. What else can they do? And someone like you, I'm not saying you should do translations for free, but LSPs like yourself are good about sharing knowledge. You're writing blogs, hosting webinars, stuff like that. And it's not just marketing material. It's adding value to the industry. Right? Yeah, and it's just, I think everybody wants to establish themselves as an authority uh, on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that knowledge sharing part of the process is a key to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I, out of fun, the other day I ran a, a little online poll on LinkedIn going like, should, should translation be a black box or should be more, uh, uh, should be more of a, uh, uh, should you really explain your processes and go into the details with your clients, right? And uh, I guess when you build up this uh, uh, selection of knowledge or of knowledge base that you then go out and share with the world that's one more discrete way of you know like sharing what your processes are and sharing what makes you different and unique without overburdening the people who are listening to you or you know being a little bit oversaturating yeah here it is uh dear network we would really appreciate your feedback on this clients and providers comments to expand on your answers are much appreciated should translation be a black box, not explain process, but show results? Or should we explain processes and how they add value to our clients? 85%, 85% say that we should be explaining our processes. There's Anne-Marie, Nicola, you guys can go check that out. Um, go follow yeah. Philippe on, on LinkedIn and you can see more. But yeah, And that was 85%. And what was funny was that a lot of the people within those 85% were end clients. So uh, they, which I found particularly curious because those are the people you'd expect to be like, oh, this new result. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Translation is translation. Yeah. I've heard both. I've heard both from clients and it really, it's really depends upon the clients. Right. And it goes back to that nicheification, you know, having different niches in our industry. Um, 
I guess you would say diversification of our industry. That's not the right word. Anyways, it goes back to this characteristic of the industry where some LSPs are going to specialize in being fully transparent with the clients and reporting and high visibility. And some LSPs are more black box LSPs. And some clients want to work with the first one. Some clients want to work with the second one. But getting back to our our topic here, you know, we're talking about competing with the big boys. So yeah. you said you're about twenty five folks. Twenty three people. Yeah. Twenty three people at your company, yeah. and you know, someone told me once you should never call an LSP a small LSP because yeah, I know, I know. it's you know because you can always outsource more, right? We're we're service providers, mm-hmm. so there's no such thing as a small LSP. But you know, compared to the we localizes and perfects yeah exactly i i think yeah. i wrote that in the book too but yeah. um compared to, to the really big boys yeah you're relatively smaller in headcount let's just put it that way yeah. significantly yes. and you mentioned something or we mentioned something in the introduction to this podcast today which you wrote so i'll give you credit you said uh, this is an industry of scope, not scale. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, what did you mean by that? So what did I mean by that? I do think that overall uh, what happens is we tend to uh, – so I'll give you a practical example. Actually, that works better. Um, the other day I was talking to this person. They own a really, really small LSP. They, their revenue is about 220000 uh a year okay. and uh, they have a 60 percent uh, grow uh, net profit at the end of the year and i was like you know how wow. how is this freaking possible you know like 60 <laughs> percent like i can't believe this um and you know it seems to be the case that actually translations that's why it's so enticing sometimes to start a business that's what happened with my parents in the 90s and I feel like that's the story behind a lot of people who started their business. It's like a freelancer, you know, they're getting more and more work. And as they get more work, yep. they start to set up a company and start outsourcing some of that work. And that actually, that early stage in the process seems to be where people make like really good money in terms of percentage wise. So, no and overhead. Once- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You're not paying a bookkeeper and an HR person and a CIO and all of this stuff. So yeah, a vendor manager, a project, more project managers, a production manager. When you start, when you start needing to manage the project managers, right? So what happens is, is as you grow, you get all this overhead, right? And I'm experiencing that right now. And it doesn't seem like for a lot of clients that overhead is worth the benefits. Like I'll, I'll give you a practical example yet again. Like one of our, one, uh, I guess the standard typical end client for us is a lawyer's office that wants to do, or a small, medium-sized or, uh, or large company. But basically that uh, they have like maybe two, three language pairs that they mostly uh, need and that's primarily their uh, uh, their requests and uh, so for them it would make sense to work with a local uh, LSP because yep. we have localized knowledge of the market we can find Portuguese into and from basically everything uh, we've been lucky enough to work with the prosecutor's office and crime doesn't discriminate there's criminals from every country so we have a very diverse pool of uh, vendors in terms of what we can provide into and from Portuguese. So, you know, for, for them, it makes sense to, to, to work with a small company because, you know, what bring, big companies bring to the table uh, uh, isn't necessarily a very high value to them. Mm. Uh, so, for example, all that data collection capability and all that uh, uh, process, you know, those uh, maybe super specific processes uh, uh, and, you know, the ability to translate into 200 something languages and do continuous localization and be super integrated with their technology for a small, medium sized lawyer's office. That's probably not too valuable. Right. So paying for right. all that extra value for them isn't it's waste. Actually, it isn't value for them. You know, uh, of course, if you're now the opposite is also true. If you're in Ikea or if you're a, uh, a Microsoft or if you're a Facebook, if you're, if you're a giant company that needs stuff translated into hundreds of languages all the time, every day, every hour of the day, 
um, of course, then scale does matter. Uh, right. So it seems to be the case that for certain types of clients, primarily really big clients with very complex needs, both technically complex as well as linguistically complex, there there seems to be benefits for uh, to work with really big LSPs. But for the typical company, so to speak, that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, uh, and we've even seen some of the big companies, it really depends upon their strategy, but I've even seen some of the big companies want to go more to a smaller vendor strategy. And I remember five, five to 10 years ago, and maybe this is just me, but my observation was that the industry was trending towards single sourcing. So companies consolidating their supply chain rather than working with three or four different MLVs. I mean, the big, the big clients, right? Rather than working with two, three, four different LSPs, they would consolidate down into one LSP and sometimes even consolidate further so that they'd have an LSP that was managing not just all of their languages, but all of their services as well. So they were doing translation, they're doing QA, they were doing testing, they were doing managed services and all of these things. And the thought process behind it was is if we simplify the supply chain, then we simplify that overhead that's required to manage the supply chain. We get lots of economies of scale, efficiencies out of that. And my observation is that a lot of these clients have kind of been burned and they've realized that that introduces a lot of risk into the process. Because if I have three or four different vendors, then one of them is not performing, they're not hitting their KPIs, then I can start shifting work away from that vendor into another vendor. Or let's say one vendor is giving me really bad quality results for Indic languages, then I can take away Indic languages and give that to a different vendor. But if you just have one vendor, then you're, you're kind of stuck, stuck with them. So I've seen this trend where... <coughs> The biggest clients, oh, I'd hesitate to call it a trend, but I've observed that bigger clients are now asking us here at NIMSI about how do we get away from a consolidated supply chain? How do we diversify it and start reducing some of that risk, right? And it's creating opportunities for quote unquote smaller companies like you guys for, you know, companies like, oh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I think Facebook is still working with a lot of SLS, uh, uh, SLVs. Um, Netflix famously tried to go to a full freelancer model and yeah. that didn't work out so well for them, but because yeah, then basically you're just trying to build an MLV inside your own company. Right. right. Like, right. Yeah. And I think, um, I see that a lot when, you know, a big client gets a new localization director who's comes from a different department and doesn't know anything about localization because they, they look at the supply chain and they say what any experience director yeah. would say, which is. Why are, why are there so many middlemen? There's so much inefficiencies here. And mm -hmm. they try to remove that inefficiency and then they realize quickly that there's a reason for that quote-unquote yeah. inefficiency. Yeah, because just the amount of localized knowledge you need to, to, to service a, a language properly at the scale that it's needed for a lot of these clients, uh, it sort of requires the sort of like MLV yeah. Uh, subcontracts LSP, which subcontracts uh, uh, translators, or has their own, uh, uh, or has their own in-house team. You know, so uh, it also seems to be the case that a lot of MLVs are building their own local offices in uh, in uh, uh, countries, so that they can hire some linguists or some LQA specialists themselves in those countries. So it really isn't clear cut. Uh, you know, there there isn't like a one size fits all formula that's permeates the entire industry that there seems to be a lot of variation so True. you know for the sake of, of argument we have to generalize a bit but it's still there are still some patterns we can draw from um not to run away too much from the title so competing with the big boys i guess right. what what i wanted to 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 mention a little bit is and not to use another tr uh, industry buzzword right now but as you were saying when we were talking about sharing knowledge and why so many people are eager to share, so there's a lot of co-opetition in their industries, in our industry. So one of the ways, I guess, <laughs> I could say competing with the big big boys is if you can't beat them, uh, join them, right? So uh, uh, supplying other LSPs tends to have lower acquisition costs 
we don't spend uh, any money on sales almost you know we go up on occasion to some uh, um uh, industry events or i i spend quite a bit of time on linkedin and uh, making connections and meeting vendor managers from these larger companies but uh, other than that the acquisition costs i'm not going to say they're they're zero but they're they're fairly low um it's quite fairly easy money they set everything up nicely for you you just have to learn their process and study them and uh, uh, a fairly quick return on investment yep. as well uh, low and quick basically yep. so there's plenty of good reasons to work with the uh, mlvs uh, especially Certainly. if you work in some markets that are more low cost, as would be the case for Portugal, as would be the case for a lot of Eastern European countries. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily even the case that MLVs pay less than direct clients. Uh, that, it's a case uh, by case, for sure. Case by case, for sure. Uh, so there's some, uh, there, there's some of that going on. Now, there's obviously also very big disadvantages to, uh, to working with MLVs. Uh, one of them would be uh, if you if you want to sell your company. What I get from talking to other people, this is not my own opinion, but but it seems to be the case that though ML uh, uh, LSPs that sell to MLVs collect a very low price on the market if you want to sell them. So there seems to be that disadvantage. Um, there seems to be the it's, disadvantage. It's outside yes, my wheelhouse. We do a lot of M&A consulting here at MZ Insights, but that's yeah. black boxed away from me because I have a big mouth and that's yeah. under heavy NDA. But um, I do know that one of the first thing potential buyers are going to ask for, and investors too, not just buyers, most mostly investors, is they want to know what are the big companies that you work for. And they don't yeah. want to hear that you work for a bunch of MLVs. They want to know that you work for... Google and uh, Microsoft and, and those guys, they want to hear names that you've talked to before. So yeah, I can kind of verify your assumption there. Yeah. So uh, working with MLVs, uh, you also learn a lot from working with MLVs. You can uh, take away a lot of good ideas from their processes. Uh, they have more time to work on their processes and a higher need as you scale up, you you, you have a bigger need for having everything nice and standardized, right? Well, Consistent. They understand the process too, right? Yeah. It's like they understand when you get a handoff from an MLV, they understand the complexities of localization versus yeah. a handoff directly from an end client is, you know, they're working with you because they don't understand the process. So sometimes those handoffs can be a little challenging to decipher. Absolutely. Um, uh, so you can get a lot of good ideas from MLVs, but there's also uh, there's also serious disadvantages, like again the the price of your company if you're looking to sell, um, process extensiveness and process complexity, or if you want to put it a different way, process complexity and process rigidity would also be an issue for working with other LSPs that I found. So I've only been working in this industry for six years now, but uh, so one trend that seems to be uh, that seems to be happening is that MLVs are building up more and more processes for their uh, suppliers. Hmm. So you have the style guides are getting bigger and thicker, and uh, the, there's training videos you need to watch. There's training sessions you need to attend to and webinars. So they're basically requesting hours and hours of commitment on your part yeah. without without even before seeing a single project. Yeah. So. And this is a, a, a across the board seems to be the case. Uh, so working with the uh, uh, MLVs does seem to have the burden of extensive processes and rigidity in processes. Like we have a case of a situation where the client owes us uh, some money. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're good for it. They're a really successful company, <laughs> but it's just that they changed something in the way that they've uh, that they're collecting invoices, and now we have to redo all of our invoices. And we're trying to explain to them, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, is there any chance you can st still take all of these the way they used to be done before? And there isn't a lot of opportunity for these discussions with very big uh, companies because the processes tend to be fairly rigid, right? Like, uh, and for a good reason, which is you want consistent results. You don't want things to be reliant on people. You want things to be reliant on processes. And uh, uh, so that process uh, process complexity and rigidity seems to be uh, one of the burdens of working with uh, other LSPs. Um, what else? Techn the technological burden also seems to be oh, increasing. Got to work in their tools, their platforms. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, you have to use 12 different TMSs and uh, 15 different client por supplier portals and uh, 12 different cat tools, which, for example, let's take our case where we take a lot of pride in uh, getting really good at mastering one cat tool. In our case, it's right. MemoQ. Sure. So uh, we, we, use our in we have an internal team of translators. We've invested a lot. They know how to use all sorts of stuff from regular expressions to term bases to uh, auto translation rules to very refined QA settings to catch a lot of mistakes or to catch the right type of mistakes. Uh, uh, like a lot of different processes that make their make them more efficient and quicker. And you know, like it's it seems to drop like a solid twenty to thirty percent when you're constantly jumping from one cat tool to another, especially if you're using browser-based cat tools which prioritize the comfort of uh, the project managers so, over the comfort of linguists. Thank which you. Is always that, Somebody had to say it. Yep. Yeah. Which is always that trade-off, right? Which you is either, important. Yeah, it's important to have the comfort of the project managers, but yeah. I've, I've often said that is that when, especially if the cat tool request is, or the TMS, I should say, request is coming directly from the end client it's going through an mlv getting passed on to the slv getting passed on to the freelancer is there's a bunch of different steps in there and these clients i understand it they're paying a lot of money let's say they onboard xtm and they're using xtm to manage all of their processes it's a fine tool it's a fine tool it's a great tool nothing against xtm but once that gets passed down three or four, you might end up with translators who just don't want to work in XTM because it's yeah. not their their tool of choice. And so what ends up happening <laughs> is that there's always this, and back in my experience anyways, there's always this conversation with the translators. Like, no, you've got to work in this tool because the client's paying a lot of money for this tool and they want to be able to see you updating the strings in real time so that they can get the reporting so that they can get the status update and all of that stuff uh, sorry you got me off on a rant there no absolutely absolutely and it seems to be the case that it's it's like a really big trade-off and you sort of have to pick one side of the things because browser-based cat tools they're really good at, at creating like a, an easy to follow workflow and to standardize processes and all of that they seem to be really good at that but at the expense of maybe not letting uh, uh, the translator get the most out of their uh, productivity, sure. right? So that seems to be the trade-off. Now, I prefer desktop-based uh, uh, cat tools for one simple reason, which is when you break down the cost, at least in a company our size, 60% of the total cost of a word is still the act of translation itself. It's not project management. It's not sales. It's not paying commissions. It's not vendor management. It's not the overhead. Yep. It's still... Just uh, which is still a big percentage. So I'd rather optimize 60% than op project management for us at least is around 10 to 15% of total costs per of the total per word cost. And I'd rather optimize 60%. You know, if I get 10% of the 60% is 6%, 10% of 10 to 15% is 1 to 1.5%, right? So right. if I make myself 10% more efficient on the translation part, of the of the equation i'm getting much bigger gains than if i make myself 10 percent more efficient in the project management side of the equation Makes sense. so so uh that's uh, so i'm a little bit biased to the desktop tools but uh, what are some other disadvantages of working with mlvs um i'd say these are the main ones so uh, I, I know this is a cop-out to my own title but one way to compete with the 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 big boys uh, or big girls fair enough i big actually girls. took the that's for you marina marina's in yeah. the comments and I, I actually took the title from vigdis erickson once who was telling me you know it's important to know how to compete with the big boys as well when, when those situations arise and uh, i just so it just sort of stuck the expression just sort of stuck in my head but you're right i should uh, as a millennial i should know better i, I fixed um, it i fixed it up here so in the title it's <laughs> big boys and big girls Nice. Thank, Thank you, you for man. the save. Yeah. Thank you for the save. Um, uh, uh, so basically, I know it's kind of a cop-off from the title, but one way to compete with them is not to compete with them, but to co-opete with them, right? Yeah. So uh, you sort of cooperate where you can, and then you compete where you must. Uh, the other uh, the other way to do it is sort of the old Sun Tzu expression, which is fight them where they're not. The conversation where we, we were having before of we're targeting different clients. Yeah. 
in any case there, there there isn't like massive overlap so just fight them where they're not go after the types of clients where you know that big overhead that these uh, giant companies have isn't adding that much value to them we're talking clients with very specific and few language combination needs uh hopefully that's in languages that you have localized experience in and you can get the most you can produce the most value for and you have the the, yep. the, the biggest amount of resources and all that kind of stuff. So that would be on the, the other one, which, and I haven't watched it yet. It's maybe pick geographies that are still not very popular. Right. So mm -hmm. I know that you did a show about Africa recently and mm -hmm. its specificities, for example, I'm, maybe this is advice from me being Portuguese because Portuguese is spoken in uh, multiple continents. Right. But Perhaps something interesting if you're a Portuguese speaker is maybe consider the Angolan market or the Mozambican market or markets that are that haven't been uh, haven't been as uh, uh, as tapped into yet. Sure. Uh, if you're a French speaker, uh, th th there's other examples of African countries, and if you're a, a, an English speaker as well. Uh, but basically, you know, maybe pick geographies that haven't been super popular with uh, uh, MLVs just yet. And that's another way to, to gain uh, to, to to gain clients. Um, so fight them where they're not. To that get, would be another to advice. gain clients from an LSP perspective. I always think of it in you know as far as geographical expansion. I always think of it in two different ways. And one is chasing clients, selling right. So like when you say Africa, um, what clients out there are localizing into African languages, and I can develop that as a specialty and sell to those clients. Or yeah. another way of looking at it is what clients are located in Africa, and I can go sell to those clients. But also in our industry, because we're, we're right in the middle of the supply chain on the LSPs, and LSPs are anyways, um, is how can I build a supply chain in Africa? And not necessarily just for languages, right? And I'm just using Africa as an example, but I know some larger size, medium to large size LSPs that have done a great job of building out production centers in Africa for project management, for yeah. things like that, yeah. for call centers, you know, Portuguese call centers in Africa, in Portuguese speaking yeah. countries. So. For that. Yeah, lot, lots of different options available out there. I, I want to get to just because lots of people in chat today. And let's take a look at what people are saying. First of all, Lucia, is that your mama? Yeah, yeah. Aww, hi, mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> hi, mom. I think my mom's watching too. I always send her the yeah. link right before I go live because she. I just like to hear your voice. I'm like, all right, mom, here you go. So if hi, mom, to my mom, too, out there, if she's watching. So, Lucia, thank you. Um, Matias Caesar. Do you know Matias Caesar? I do not. Okay, Matias Caesar is super active. Lots of good stuff. I want to scroll back up here to – I can't scroll on screen. But, uh, Matias, you left this formula. Here is a motto I have been using for a while now. S equals M C squared success equals maturity times curiosity squared. And I really like that because we talk a lot about localization maturity in this industry, but maturity is not the only thing out there. Curiosity I think is, is really important too. And this is back when we were talking about, you know, asking people for advice and listening to good advice and all of that stuff too. Um, Matthias, again, I agree. Web-based solutions often enable less productivity, so the model of payment needs to change. Oh, gosh, we're going there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're going there. Uh, why yeah. words? Okay, easy to budget, but just not mapping well with reality. No? What do others think? Hey, let us know in the comments, guys. we still got 2070 of it here. Um, respond to Matthias. What do you think about um, the current payment model of per word rate? Uh, you want me to go first, or do you want you you want to go first, Philippe? Go for it, Tucker. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm kind of a pragmatist. I'm kind of a I like to call myself a realist, but you know, to be determined. But when we're talking about changing the per word rate, I I agree. The per word rate should change. Um, should should is a very dangerous word yeah. though, because should usually doesn't reflect or often doesn't reflect reality. 
Um, I think the reason it stuck along or stuck around for so long is because historically it has been easy to quantify and easy to predict and easy to forecast, as you said in your comment here, Matthias. And that is why it has stuck around so long, because if I have a handoff with 500 words, I can easily calculate what that's going to look like. However, I say historically, it has been easy to calculate. Nowadays, we have vast, the vast majority of translations happening out there are happening with machine translation, right? Just raw machine translation. We never even hear about a lot of that just because it's happening out there. Um, a lot of translation, and I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but a lot of translation is going through machine translation post-editing, right? There's increased as companies, end client companies are turning their focus more and more towards global or local, I should say, uh, user experience. Um, there are teams out there that are looking more and more at trans creation and in-country copywriting and things like that. So I say all that to say this, localization is getting more complex and diverse than it used to be. It's not just here's 500 words. It's here's 500 words and what are we going to do with them? So that's why I say the per word model is becoming perhaps not obsolete, but insufficient. I think we can still keep using the per word model for, um, you know, standard translation handoffs moving forward, but we need to step up to the plate and offer other pricing models as well. And once again, LSPs like you, Philippe, we're stuck right in the middle, which means you're negotiating up and you're negotiating down. So it's not just one thing to be able to tell the client, here's the pricing model that we're going to use, and here's why you need to listen to it, because all of your competitors are giving them something that's much easier to understand, but you also need to negotiate down and basically train your supply chain to be, to be willing to accept these, these new rates. So that's, that's my stand on it if you put a gun to my head right now with no prep time what do you think well i agree with most of what you said and sure there's a tricky word because the problem with units of measurement is once implemented they have a really hard historically they have a hard time being changed like i read somewhere that the reason why train tracks in the us are the size they are is because train tracks in england in the 19th century were a certain size and it all goes back to like roman roads and the uh, um uh, chariots the, the the width between the wheels of a cha roman chariot so you know like uh, the us has done some some efforts in the past with the oh, uh, implementing system you're talking to an american like i have no i i know exactly what you're talking about we're still using feet and inches and yeah, yeah, fahrenheit yeah. and all of this other stuff we haven't caught up with the rest of the world so yeah. So, so units of, of measure tend to be uh, uh, tend to stick around for a very long time and 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 tend to 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 live as zombies amongst us for way longer than they should. So uh, uh, whether it should or not uh, doesn't. I'm not sure that's the right question. Right question is: uh, 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 is Will it, it change? Is it possible? Is it possible to change? Then my answer to that is no. Yeah, we're not probably. ready for it. I mean, people aren't in enough pain yet to, to yeah. change. I think people, especially for an institutional change like what we're talking about, people need to be in a lot of um, pain in order to do that. I will say, going back to our theme of competing with the big boys and big girls, though, I could foresee if, if and when this change comes you know, and other changes like this that kind of revolutionize the way that we do things, it's not necessarily the big boys or big girls, quote unquote, that are bringing about these changes. Because in my experience, I think sometimes the small and medium-sized LSPs are much more strategically positioned to be able to try new things and experiment with new things. Whereas the... There's too much bureaucracy, too many standards and processes and stuff like that to working at the, the big companies. What do you think about that? I absolutely agree. Um, when it comes to innovation, it seems to be the case that uh, big companies can do a lot, can do a lot more experiments at once because, you know, just the, the size. 
but uh, uh, it still all comes down to and going back to competing you know if you're competing on a project with a big lsp it still boils down to a really small team within that giant company you know that's doing the work and the same and so we're a small team they're a small team so it's fair game to some extent now uh, i think this is also true for innovation right so they have like their their uh, working on a lot of different areas so you don't have that benefit if you're really small you have to like really pick your battles carefully mm -hmm. but you can still innovate quite a bit like I, I can give you some practical examples of some stuff that we're working on right now yeah. we are working heavily on building regular tools of regular expressions uh filters and auto translation rules that catch certain grammatical patterns uh, uh, at uh, 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 automatically instead of relying on things like style guides because style guides they're kind of a uh, uh, so the style guides are kind of like style so guides require that the translator actually read them mm -hmm. and so some of, of these like style guides are like 60 80 pages and it goes back to yeah. what you were talking about earlier which is do you expect the translator to sit there and read 60 pages and not get compensated for it before they can translate yeah. a single word? Yeah. I was just talking with Vasilis from Lexica the other day and we, we went in on this. So sorry to interrupt. Go. No, no problem. No problem. So to me, a style guide is kind of like how in the old days factories would have a, a you know, if you're stamping uh, some, uh, some, some sheet of metal with a form and uh, uh they put a sign saying don't put your hands in the machine otherwise your hands will get crushed That's important. and then you know that sign would just become part of the background when people have been working there for months and years and all that stuff and then they put their hands in the machine and they crush their hands so nowadays what we do is you have machines that require both hands to be operated and we will only work if people have both of their hands in the in the dials that they're supposed to be using so uh, that's basically just an analogy for uh, you don't want processes that re rely too much on people reading them for them to work. You want you want processes that work automatically and that are fairly intuitive to follow. Right. So, um, for example, um, but you said it earlier, right, is focus more on the process than on the people. Right. Yeah. Because people can forget. People can make mistakes. People can change. So yeah. what's the process? exactly so right now we're working on building really specific and uh, uh, ironclad quality assurance rules to make uh, qa settings sorry uh, using automatic translation rules so for example currency settings and uh, um what else would be another example dates how to structure dates in a specific or articles for legal right like how to automatically do the conversion of an article uh, a legal article from one system to the other, like build that stuff up. MT performs fairly poorly with that stuff as well. So that's a, that's something we can do that complements machine translation very well, uh, building that level of consistency. And uh, uh, that's something we can do, and probably they can't because it requires it requires to have both some technological skills, mm -hmm. but also some very specific in-depth knowledge of the target language that you're using to program these auto-translation rules for them to be used. So you can't, that's something that you're a small company you can do. We have two people working on it primarily. Uh, it's much easier to implement on your team because you don't have a giant team, you have a small team. So uh, so, so that makes it easier well, to then apply it's as well. It's just the truth. Like I was on a call this morning, we're revamping one of the tools available on our website, the virtual interpreting technology. Hi Rosie, if you're watching, you're doing a great job. Wow. And I was thinking to myself, like things were easier five years ago when it was like me and Renato. It's like, if I wanted a web page, I just made a web, made a web page and that was it right there was no need we didn't run it through marketing we didn't send it to design we didn't do blah 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 testing and all that stuff so sometimes it's a it's easier and quicker and more efficient to get things done with two people than if you have a team of 20 developers that need to yeah. be managed yeah, absolutely absolutely uh, uh i mean that seems to be one of the big disadvantages sorry of being small is agility right which is something you sort of lose uh as you grow uh and agility seems to because yeah. this is uh, problems this is we solve problems right like any industry we solve problems 
But in our case, the, 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 there is also a sense of a very fast pace associated with our industry, which means that flexibility is an extremely highly valuable asset, uh, yep. not to be not to be rigid. And you know, like, so let me ask you this: Why okay. do you think? Why do you think? there are being so many mergers and acquisitions right now why do you think what what do you think the strategy behind getting big seems to be as a competitive advantage i mean right now is like i, I told you m a is not my expertise i can yeah. refer you over to renato and jo and christopher on our team they're they're the ones taking care of all of that but this industry has always had M&A activity. And in my, my opinion, this isn't data-backed expertise, but my opinion is that everything that LSPs do in our industry is driven by client need, right? So clients uh, or LSPs grow through acquisition so that they can better serve their clients, whatever that might look like. It might mean there might be an acquisition to add a capability. So you might hire a voiceover studio or you might buy a voiceover studio to add that to your capabilities. You, you might, you can buy expertise, you can buy people, you can buy technology, you can buy market reach, you can buy clients, you can buy Rolodexes, right? I might buy a client that's working with Apple or buy an LSP that's working with Apple because I want into the Apple accounts, right? It's risky, but there's all sorts of different reasons to grow. Um, LSPs don't acquire other LSPs just because they want to, it's not just for ego, right? It's not just because they want to get bigger. It's There's usually something strategic going on with it. And sometimes that strategic thing is might just be they have money to spend and they don't want to pay taxes on all of it. So they they hire they they buy someone else. They spend their money. So do you think that with the custom MT and the, the, the need to, to feed these engines data and to make them better and that kind of stuff, there are some advantages to to, to being a to size that maybe didn't exist a few years ago, like leveraging of data and data needs to be, you need to have a lot of it for, for it to, to, to be useful. Do you think that that, uh, that that helps as well? To me, the advantage of size, like if I was a client and trying to decide, should I hire a small guy, should I hire a big guy and mm -hmm. or gal? The, the reason I would go with the big guys or gals is essentially risk mitigation. It, it goes back to that old saying that nobody gets fired for hiring IBM, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can always say, look, I hired the third largest LSP in the industry. These guys have been around forever, and it's not my fault they failed. But if I, as a local buyer, decide to take a risk and hire some someone I've never heard of, some smaller company, then my boss could come back to me and say, why'd you do that? Right. And people make, you know, it's still a people driven industry. People make people, people driven decisions and, or people make personal decisions. Right. And there, there's another saying it's people make, I think this is Jeffrey Gittimer quote. People make personal, people make decisions for personal reasons and then find objective or people make decisions mm -hmm. for subjective reasons and then they find yeah. objective reasons to support their decision right and for emotional reasons and then they find logical that's that's logical it. arguments to, uh, to to back it up yeah you've heard it before yeah. let's yeah. let's look at the comments here really quickly because we're we're running out of time here and um and marie i'll get to you uh I agree. Okay, no. Anne-Marie, we're talking about the the quotes or the per word rates. Anne-Marie says that 20 years ago, don't date yourself, Anne-Marie. 20 years ago, they were talking about the shifting from per word price to hourly rates. She says that was the first big debate we've had in our translation company when she joined in 1990, right? Um, Reem Elkadi says, if we think about it from the end client perspective, this is not what they are paying. We're talking about the rate conversation, the per word rates. If we think about it from the end client perspective, this is not what they are paying us for to know how many words they are needing to translate. What they are paying for is getting their content available in language to reach different markets. So they feel overwhelmed when we provide this payment model. I've seen that before too, you know, immature, quote unquote, immature clients. Um, who'd never seen a pay per word payment model before. They're like, look, I, I don't, I don't care how many words it is. I just need my website yeah. translated. Yeah. Right. 
Um, Matthias Caesar, who wins the most active commenter award today, sent a link. You guys can, in the comments, go check that out. I brought it up on screen here. A Travel Through Space, Time, and Size, A Personal Journey by Matthias Caesar. And this is a slide deck. I don't have time to review it on air right now, but I will definitely take a look at this afterwards. Once again, if you guys are watching, it's available as a link here on LinkedIn. And Matthias, you should come on an episode of Nimsy Live and talk about it with us. I'm extend Absolutely. extending you an invitation right now. So I didn't get through all the comments, but that's as much as I'm going to get through today because we got five minutes left here, Philippe. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, all of this, this, this has been a very enjoyable, meandering conversation today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, so to, to end it, what Thank are you. some advice? Because I mean, this is what we were doing here. We're adding, we're trying to add value to other people. And, you know, so based upon your long 28 years of experience <laughs> on this earth, what advice would you have to quote unquote smaller LSPs out there that are looking to grow, looking to make a name for themselves, looking to diversify, looking to reach their goals? What advice would you have for them? Go on Nimsy Live with Tucker Johnson. No, I'm <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Your checks on the mail. So, uh, um, what would be some advice? Well, first of all, I get the feeling that when you go to a lot of networking events and uh, um, there's this vibe that bigger is better, right? Like if you tell me, if I ask you what your revenue is and uh, you tell me your, what your revenue is and I know mine and mine's lower than yours, I sort of feel bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like so uh, the old saying, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. So that's important. Like don't be obsessed with uh, this idea that size bigger equals better. You know, I, I, I started this conversation by giving some examples of how sometimes you can have a two people team and you can make massive margins and really good profit. And, 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 and sometimes when you look at certain companies that, you know, have a one million euro, two million euro revenue, and actually they just have about 30 percent of those clients actually making their money and the rest is all white noise. So uh, so be careful with that. You know, uh, win at any cost that seems to be a dangerous philosophy for uh, um, LSPs to pursue um, so what else would be valuable advice for uh, wanting to grow um, be patient take your time steady and invest in your processes because that's where we're usually actually on the weak side is uh, smaller LSPs tend to be very flexible but we tend to wash over the relevance of having like really good processes and that's something so work on your work instructions work on your checklists work on automating as much as you can in terms of quality assurance processes um i i i'm i'm very much a quality nerd so sorry if i was a little bit boring with the example of the regular expressions and auto translation rules but uh, that stuff is important. That's it how, is. you know, what does quality look like in practice? Well, that's it. You know, consistent processes to produce consistent results. So. All good advice. Thank you so much, Philippe. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully people got something out of this. I, I think they did. And once again, go follow Philippe on LinkedIn. Go follow the YouTube channel for, for those videos. I'm going to take us out here, but really quickly, our next episode coming up on December 5th, I believe, in LSP Owners M&A Exit Experience. So we talked a little bit about M&A today. Uh, next week, we're going to hear from Michelle Hecken, who had a successful exit from her company, Alpha Translations, up in Canada. So I think I'm going to be doing that with me and Renato. So follow Nimsy Insights and come join us so that you can be part of that. Well, <laughs> ladies, gentlemen, chat, we are out of time today. But if you enjoyed this Nimsy Live experience, then join us next week when we talk to Michelle. Uh, if you're not already signed up, you can go sign up on that right now. You'll be notified when we go live. Once again, finally, my name is Tucker Johnson, host of Nimsy Live, and it has been my pleasure to join you today as we all experience Nimsy Live together. I'd like to 
thank my guest, Philippe, today. I'd like to thank my all my colleagues here at Nimsy Insights for all of the hard work that they, they're doing so I get to have these fun conversations. And I'd like to thank everybody in our industry who fills out Nimsy surveys and schedules briefings with our analysts so that we can include you in our published industry research. Last but not least, I'd like to thank you guys in the audience who've all joined us live today. I appreciate the dialogue and chat, everybody who left comments, questions, and especially criticisms. And I look forward to next time. Ciao.